Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers are going to discuss Acts 6 and 7, specifically looking at the crisis of leadership that happens there and examining the person of Stephen. Before we jump in, we did want to remind you about our new audio project, the Theopolis Blogcast. If you go ahead and search for Theopolis Blogcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, you'll find us there and we are releasing episodes every Monday that are audio recordings of our blog articles. One way that we hope that this is helpful to you is that you can take one of our articles and listen to it more than once to really be able to digest what's going on in the article. There's also some that may be helpful to listen to as a family or with your friends or kids in the car. We really hope that you enjoy it and we invite you to subscribe. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation over these passages. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts 6 and 7. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and packaging and introducing the podcast uh, so that it's uh, easy for you to listen to and professionally done. Brian makes us look good. Uh, We are in the middle of a series of studies in the book of Acts, uh, and we've gone through the first five chapters of Acts, uh, looking at a number of different threads. Uh, Last time we looked a bit at the Joshua typology that's running through the early chapters of Acts. Uh, We've also been looking at the escalating uh, confrontation between uh, the Jewish leaders and the apostles uh, that uh, begins uh, almost immediately after Peter's Pentecost sermon, which is a a pretty blunt accusation against the Jewish leaders, uh, and particularly uh, begins to kick into gear when Peter and John heal the lame man at the temple, and that creates an enthusiasm with the crowd and uh, the Jewish leaders, out of jealousy, we later learn, are trying to suppress the preaching of the name, and also because they don't like to be accused of killing their own Messiah. So we've had that clash escalating. In the last uh, episode, we looked at chapter 5, where the apostles are arrested, put in jail, released from jail by an angel, uh, and then brought before the Sanhedrin and testify before the Sanhedrin. And at the end of that chapter, they're flogged and warned again not to preach about Jesus. That's the first time that any any of the Christian leaders have been physically disciplined by the authorities, but that's coming to uh, that too is escalating in the in the uh, episode that we're going to start looking at this week, uh, which is Acts six and seven. Uh, Stephen is going to be the first martyr, and he's put to death at the end of chapter seven. But uh, the chapters six and seven uh, go together. Uh, chapter six introduces Stephen initially. Uh, and then chapter seven is the speech that he gives. So this at least fits into that growing crisis. As we looked at, as we've said before, the crisis is is in part a crisis about leadership and headship over the people of Israel. Uh, where is Israel going to go? Are they going to follow the apostles and the way of Jesus, uh, the way of life, or are they going to cling to the old ways and cling to the leaders? The leaders see their authority slipping through their fingers as thousands of people begin to follow Jesus. Uh, and so they are protecting their authority and pre- protecting their turf. And the people are in the middle within this conflict. And that conflict is, as I said, coming to a 
an initial climax here with the story of Stephen and his martyrdom. You mentioned, Peter, when we tackled Acts 5, that initially there had been the conflict with authorities, and then there is conflict within the church in terms of the sinful attitudes of um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Here is, again, internal conflict um, or or more complaint, I guess, which doesn't seem... uh, of the same uh, cut from the same cloth as Ananias and Sapphira, it, it's uh, would you call it a, a dispute between brethren? It, it is just the internal tension of the church. It reminds me more of the murmuring of the Israelites within the community than anything else. Mm-hmm. I want to raise the issue: Is this my proof text for getting out of household chores? And if it's not, where do I go for that kind of thing? <laughs> I, I think it is in fact yeah a division a division of labor uh where you're devoted to the word and prayer and uh, somebody else does your dishes and serves your table well one of the things that happens during the course of the chapter interestingly and in the next few chapters is that the seven who are selected in order to serve tables do an awful lot of word work Stephen gives one of the longest speeches, if not the longest speech in the book of Acts in chapter seven. Philip is one of the seven. Uh, and we don't never see him serving tables, but he, he does do a lot of preaching, uh, as we find when he's chased out of Jerusalem in chapter, chapter eight uh, and uh, goes off to Samaria and then meets the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. So that whatever distinction they're making here gets blurred pretty quickly because uh, these uh, so-called deacons are doing work that uh, is the work of word and prayer. Yeah, that's a really good point, because I think this passage has been used as a proof text by uh, Presbyterians to uh, segregate preaching and uh, praying from uh, any kind of activity, um, any kind of other activities, and sometimes gives Presbyterian preachers the... uh, the justification for just spending all their time in the in their offices and not really uh, going out, you know, studying and preparing for sermons and things like that. I don't, I don't believe, and and I, I could talk about this for a long time actually, but I'm, I won't. I don't believe this passage is a good proof text for um, deacons. I think this is more like a. Um, um, the first, these seven are really the first ministers. Uh, so you have the apostles, and then they they recognize here that they need uh, to uh, delegate some authority, and they need to uh, assign uh, other men to be leaders in the church, not just deacons like we think of, but uh, servants uh, and uh, servants uh, that, as you mentioned, uh, servants of both. Uh, the table and the word, but the apostles, and I, I think it's it's legitimate to think that the apostles here are when they talk about um, not right for us to give up the word of God. It, the word preaching is actually not in the Greek text. Not right for us to give up the word of God to serve tables, and then verse four, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. I think it's not unbelievable to to think that the apostles are here thinking about their duty to uh, get 
the um, the story of Jesus written down, that they've been given the Spirit by Jesus. They've been promised in the upper room that they'd be given the Spirit, so they bring all this together, and, and they're Jews, so they want to write it down. So I don't think it's impossible. I think it's highly likely that the apostles are here thinking about their duty to uh, get this all written down, and so they're going to to pass off to other mature, full of the spirit leaders um, to take over uh, not just the not just the service of meals to these um, widows, but but more than that, um, they're going to. Um, they're going to carry on the ministry, if you will, uh, the ordinary ministry of the word and of these meals like the apostles really don't have time to do. One question that we probably need to ask here concerns the the source of the ordination of the, the seven, if we're going to call it ordination. The question of who actually lays their hands upon them is not entirely clear from the text, it seems to me that it's the congregation or the the disciples that lay their hands upon the seven rather than the apostles. The apostles aren't committing the seven with a charge in their ministry. Rather, they're saying, this is not our ministry. Rather, this is a duty of the congregation to take charge of this. Mm. You need to appoint among yourselves some people to be in charge of this particular ministry. And people looking for a broader account of church ministry in such a passage the i think we might be in danger of missing the occasional character of this and there are things to learn from it but it's not an argument certainly not an argument for deacons i don't think nor are these figures apprentices to the apostles there seems to be something more complicated going on where you have the ministry of the apostles over against the congregation as servants of Christ, ministers of Christ, and then you have the seven in some ways being set up as ministers of the congregation to specific parties within it that need to be provided for in the daily distribution. Hmm. So for any of you, the um, uh, Jeff, I, I guess particularly I'm thinking with your comments, um, when, when there are references to deacons, which uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, which seems to be an office, um, a, the, a traditional way to read those is to run it through Acts 6 and see it as a ministry of mercy, uh, you know, a uh, dealing with the practicalities. And you have this dis the distinction that we've been talking about that's introduced into there. You're, you're not buying that. So when you see a deacon, uh, deacons as, a, as, a, as an office later in the New Testament, uh, what is that referring to? The whole question of <laughs> how and when these offices developed is extremely difficult in the news. I don't think that the New Testament is laying out for us some kind of use divinum uh, system of church government and offices, especially in the book of Acts. I mean, what, what you have here, and James mentioned this earlier, this is a transitory period time, um, and this is a transitional time. And what you have here is uh, uh, things happening, this this uh, diversification of leadership in the church um, is happening, you know, in real time here, and in response to specific situations and and challenges. But we're not given some sort of of um, book of church order 
uh, here at all. In fact, nowhere here are these men called deacons. They're just called to serve. But as we all know, uh, diaconia um, is a word that's used with regard. It's the same word for ministry or ministers in the ministry. It's the same so, word, um, verse, four, verse four, for the ministry of the word. Yes, it is. Uh, and so I think we... We need to be careful, Presbyterians especially guilty of this, of trying to use these texts as proof texts. Rather, what, what this text does for us is tell us that, um, you know, delegation of authority is important, diversification of, of the ministry, um, and uh, division of labor, uh, and looking for men who are qualified to do these things. That's that's really important here. It's kind of an Exodus 18 kind of thing. Moses, you can't do it all yourself. You know, uh, uh, Ruel or uh, tells him, uh, and, and you need to diversify. You need to appoint other people, and I, I think that's more of the lesson here than trying to identify specific offices for the church today. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. if this is our proof text, then holders of you know the office, let's call it, of a deacon, should be men full of grace and power, good preachers. They should do signs and wonders among the people. You know, it's um. Uh, but on a, on a different note, I mean, I, I do find it interesting that they are said to be men in verse three, full of the spirit and, and of wisdom. And um, that that aspect of wisdom strikes me as very important. What's going on here is something all churches have to deal with, which is just this internal dispute. There is some bad feeling, and really comes out to me that that is a place where wisdom is is really needed in handling people and in uh getting down with with the practical needs of a church and i I believe this is seen as as such an essential duty in this chapter and and to think of it as this sort of second fiddle ministry i think can be quite misleading in some senses we might be inclined to read the reference to serve tables as a denigrating statement but within luke's gospel the kingdom is defined around the table. Mm. It's the context in which Christ talks about who's invited and who's included, how certain people reject the invitation and others accept and how to act when you are invited. And so the sorting out of the church around the table, it's the natural context within which the life of the church is ordered. Mm. And so I don't think it's a denigrating reference here. Rather, it's something that is distinct from the ministry of the apostles, but it is something that must be committed to people who are able, competent, and spiritually gifted men of wisdom, because how you order the table is how you order the body. Mm-hmm. All right, very good point. Yeah, we, and we also forget that administration is a spiritual gift. We forget that until we're ungifted and we try to administrate, and then, uh, <laughs> then we realize... But some, pe- some people have it and some people do not. I want to call, it, call attention to a couple of phrases, that, detailed phrases that I think are intriguing. I, I think, Alistair, you may have had this in the back of your mind. I don't think you mentioned it specifically. But in verse 6, the laying of hands by the congregation, you're saying, on uh, these seven rather yep. than by the apostles. It's similar to the, the ordination of the Levites in Numbers, uh, where, which is, involves a laying on of hands that's um, the priestly ordination does not involve laying on of hands, but the uh, ordination of, or at least the designation of these men as servants of the table does. So you have that Levite connection. I also think 
uh, as uh, as Calvin said, the laying on of hands is also sac- part of the sacrificial rite. And when you're being designated to service and ministry in the church, you're being you are being designated as a as a scapegoat and a sacrificial animal. Uh, you better get ready to be slaughtered because that's what's going to happen to you. Uh, which you know happens to Stephen right away. The other the other phrase I wanted to highlight was verse seven. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase. We we talked about this last time in the the increasing size of the church, but just the way that that's phrased, it's not that the apostles kept preaching and they were effective preachers. Uh, the word of God ha- is a power unto itself and has the it it's, it has an agency and it's spreading and affecting things. Obviously, people are preaching it, but the power of the Word of God to spread and to increase and to multiply does not depend on the preachers. It is the Word of God that has its own potency. These expressions that are intermittent within the book of Acts remind me of the statements made of Jesus and John the Baptist at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, where their growth and their um, becoming strong, filled with wisdom, favor of God being upon them, etc. These things, based upon the story of First Samuel, I think, and the growth of Samuel, but here being applied to the church in a way that parallels the church with the maturing of the infant and then child Christ. Just to piggyback on what Alistair said about the congregation participating, there's this phrase in verse 5, uh, what they said please the whole gathering, that's what the apostle said, and they chose Stephen so that the congregation seems to have participated or surely participated in choosing these men. And uh, whether it was a vote, who knows exactly how that happened, but this is indeed, I think, a, a pretty decent proof text for the participation of the congregation in choosing their leaders mm. oh, who are going to be over them. And interestingly different from the way that the that Judas's replacement was selected at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. It's a prayer and the casting of lots, but now it's the con- now that the spirit has fallen, the congregation filled with the spirit makes that selection. Another interesting phrase here, Peter, you mentioned a couple is the, the end of verse seven. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, the use of uh, obedience in reference to the faith is fascinating here. So there is the faith. Uh, so that is that uh, the content? Is that the teaching, instruction, uh, the content of uh, the Christian church? Or is that, what is the faith? Is that just a reference to maybe a different way of referencing the church? Or is it about the ideas, the doctrines, the teachings that the church is promulgating? Well, the, it's the Apostles' Creed, because that's what the apostles have been spending their time writing. I'm looking at other places in Acts where the the word, the phrase, the faith is used. It's not very illuminating. Uh, I'm always inclined to entertain the possibility, at least, that faith is an indirect reference to Jesus. And uh, I think that's what's happening. That's certainly what's happening in parts of Galatians, where Paul talks about the faith came. Um, he's not talking about beliefs or a set of doctrines appeared. He's talking about uh, God demonstrated faithful one. Yeah, the faithful one, and God demonstrated His faithfulness in His faithful one. I don't see anything in the context that would lead me to that here, but it 
I always want to at least raise that as one of the options. Uh, I think it's a neglected one. Verse 8 turns us to Stephen. Um, Stephen, as James pointed out, is uh, qualified like all of our deacons are are with uh, the ability to perform signs and wonders, and uh, he's full of grace and power. One of the things that's quite striking about Stephen's introduction is how much of the description overlaps with things that Jesus said and did. Jesus also full of grace and power. Jesus also performing great wonders and signs. Jesus also in conflict, verbal conflict, in which he's he's always victorious. Uh, Stephen's opponents are not able to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he speaks. The witnesses, false witnesses, are brought against Stephen as they were against Jesus, and the same uh, false testimony. He speaks against this holy place and the law of Moses. So we have this setup that would be fulfilled at the end of chapter 7 with um, Stephen's death. We have this setup that Stephen is like a kind of reincarnation of Jesus. The apostles have been have fulfilled that role up to this point in Acts, uh, doing miracles as Jesus did, preaching as Jesus did, having the same opponents and enemies that Jesus had. Uh, Stephen uh, is another one of these, and I think uh, in some ways is uh, there's a cluster of associations with Jesus' ministry that uh, uh, makes him stand out. Uh, and I think, again, setting up for him to be the first to shed his blood along with the blood of Jesus. Notice you've moved from the temple to the synagogue now. Now we're in synagogues. But surprisingly, these seem to be Hellenistic synagogues, right? Or synagogues um, at least related to Alexandrians and Cyrenians, Cilicia and Asia. And they're the ones who dispute with Stephen. I can't help but wonder, since Cilicia is mentioned, if Saul is not one of these uh, men who participated in the disputes with Stephen. Mm. Also, at the beginning of the chapter, you have um, tension with Hellenists and the fact that Stephen has this conflict with Hellenists afterwards from the synagogue. Maybe we should read these two parts of the story in juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder what uh, what do you what do you make of that contrast? The uh, it seems like the the weight of uh, current scholarship on the New Testament, and I'm I could be I could be wrong or well out of date on this, but the trajectory of recent scholarship has been to blur the any distinction between diaspora Judaism and Palestinian Judaism, and particularly on the point of uh, degrees of Hellenization and. That's the, that's an older an older paradigm that, as I understand, has been disputed. Uh, is this a linguistic distinction, Greek speaking Jews as opposed to Aramaic speaking Jews? Uh, what's implied by that dis- by that distinction, and is this pointing to something that current scholarship doesn't acknowledge uh, that there there was in fact a different some significant difference between these different uh, geographic clusters of Jews? I wonder whether we could maybe consider even the names of the the seven and what that suggests about their composition, um, their, their origins as well. wonder if you have any thoughts on that, James. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I do know these kind of names, even in very religious circles. So there's a large um, list of rabbinic names you can get from the Talmud and, and so forth. And Greek names are, are very common. I mean, in, in the Gospels, we have things like Alexander and, and so forth. And it's um, 
it's definitely not the case that taking on a, a, a Greek name has this stigma of being um, Hellenized or, or, or being worldly in, in, in some way. So, yeah, I, I don't know enough to say so much more about it, though. Well, one of the things I'm interested in here is just what, what it says about the nature and, and character of wisdom and it, in terms of the way Stephen is received. It's always struck me that wisdom is just something which commends itself to the majority as just obviously true. I think of Jesus' statement, wisdom is justified by her children, or even just to the book of Proverbs, in that you could get people with all sorts of different religious beliefs or no religious beliefs and could agree to the wisdom of a lot of what's there. And it seems to me that Stephen's speech has that sense and and in fact his very nature he, he obviously has good standing within the christian community and is is chosen to handle this dispute between the hellenized and and the uh non-hellenized uh people i suppose and then later on in verse 10 they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he, he was speaking it, it seems that what he's saying just has this quality to it which it just obviously makes sense it, it has that ring of truth about it that particular statement i think looks back to luke chapter 21 verse 15 i will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict so i presume that they were still arguing they wouldn't admit that stephen had won the argument but <laughs> it was very clear in the public sphere that they had lost this particular engagement and that stephen had come out on top mm-hmm. I've had kids like that who uh, I, I get into I get into a, an argument and um, I realize um, well into the argument that they've actually switched sides and agree with me now, but uh, they didn't want to admit it. <laughs> so, what do y'all think of verse fifteen at the end of this chapter, where the council uh, looks at Stephen and sees that his face was like the face of an angel? We've had angels. Uh, here in this first section of Acts. And um, we, re- we remember that angels mediated the law. Angels were the caretakers, guardians, the tutors of Israel, uh, the messengers of, of Yahweh, the deliverer. Uh, Yahweh used angel, angel of Yahweh, delivered people from um, Egypt and so on. But now they're looking at Stephen and his face was like the face of, a, of an angel. One thing that I do find interesting is the fact that almost all the references to gazing come in either Luke or Acts, and they come at some interesting points. So hmm. when Jesus closes the book, the scroll, and gives it to the minister and sits down after his Nazareth sermon, all the eyes of the people in the synagogue are gazing at him. Um, or later on, the... Um, the gazing up into heaven after the ascension. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter gazes upon the man who's lame in chapter three, and the people gaze upon the man who's been healed later on. So this is a this is a word that I think um, I think of about a dozen or so references. Only two are found outside of Luke or Acts, and those are in um, both in Second Corinthians chapter three with the gazing upon the face of Moses, which is interesting because here is something that's similar 
the transformed face of Stephen is similar to the transformed face of Moses. And uh, Stephen will refer to uh, the angel uh, four times in his speech. In fact, that's how it ends with a reminder to the Jews that uh, they received the law delivered by angels but did not keep it. It appears as if Stephen now is the messenger of Yahweh and the council sees it, recognizes it, but won't acknowledge that Yahweh is actually speaking to them through Stephen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.